You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. So everyone at home was more efficient at taking a break and coming back than everyone in person. So we're still having some people filtering up into the space. And I can see some of you have been writing some, maybe some questions in Portuguese that Marcos is going to translate. So he's already been put to work. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm going to start the talk and everything because we have only a certain amount of time. And then we have our, so we are here in, in Miami in the middle of a, at the end, not in the middle of a one month course. We have gone deeply into the Ashtanga yoga method and all the students that you saw uh, joining you as your fellow practitioners today were a part of this course. So it was very, very nice to get this feeling of being in the group, even though we're far away from each other. So the thing I wanted to talk with everyone today about is what the Ashtanga yoga method is really about. From the outside looking in, you might say that the Ashtanga yoga method is about understanding the asanas, this asana, that asana, doing this asana, doing that asana. But the Ashtanga yoga method, even if you learn every asana, you still might not understand what the method is about. And so this is something that's very important to understand. What is the Ashtanga yoga method actually about? So how do we figure that out? You know, how do we, where do we look? What do you know, what can we say? Okay, well, the first place to look when we discover what is the Ashtanga yoga method, we have to look at the traditional definition of Ashtanga and Sorry. what is promised if we practice this path. Sorry. So if we are practicing the Ashtanga yoga path, then we can think about that the idea is rooted in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Those of you who are joining the course, you maybe remember that Patanjali has given a definition of what Ashtanga Yoga is and a promise for what you get when you practice Ashtanga Yoga, right? So we have this from book two, where Patanjali says, Yoganganushtanad, which is translated into English as the continual practice of the eight limbs of yoga. Yoganganushtanad, ashtadikshaye, burns through impurities. So first, you're promised suffering, okay? You practice Ashtanga yoga, you're going to burn through impurities, and you have been doing some burning today, yes? Even at home, you've been burning through things. So some burning has happened today, some sweating, some internal fire, some heat. So the first thing that you're promised is not a path out of suffering, but actually to go right into the, into the meat of it. And this is sometimes where we say that the only way out is to go straight through, right? So if we have this idea, you know, yoganganushtanad ashadikseye, burns through impurities with the power of the fire of purification, there's a subtext that's contained here, which says that you must light the spark of the fire, because without the fire of purification, we are not removing those obstacles. You must light that spark. So this is a, an assumption that the student is willing to go through the fire. So you have gone through the fire today. Congratulations. You have much more fire to go through before we attain the results of Ashtanga Yoga. Yoga Ashtanga Yoga. 
So we talked about this also in some of the other classes that this spark, the fire of purification begins down in the pelvis and then ascends and starts to move energy upwards in the spine, awakening different energy centers. And then it becomes a light. Patanjali calls this light jnana diptir, the lamp of knowledge, right? Jnana, right, is the knowledge, diptir, the lamp. So we have the idea that after the, those obstacles had been burned, that very fire, which started off as suffering. And why do we suffer when our obstacles are burnt up? What do we think? You know, you suffer when your obstacles are burnt up because we're identified with them. We're attached to our obstacles. It's who we know ourselves to be. It's our personality. It's all of our attachments, all of our beliefs, all of our thoughts about how things should be our emotional reactions to things, our, you know, our emotional display about this or that. This is all, you know, why we suffer. If we had no ego, if we had no attachments, if we had nothing to lose, no expectations, we would not suffer in the fire. We would just glow, you know? There's um, for maybe someone who is raised uh, with a strong Judeo-Christian background may know uh, the story of the glowing um, uh, Shad Radshek and uh, Pedigo. I'm probably saying the names totally wrong, but there are these three very, very devout beings who got thrown into the fire uh, in their trial. And instead of burning, they glowed, you know, in the fire. Don't throw yourselves into fire. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's just the idea is that this mythology of glowing from an inner light is kind of, you know, very present in many, many spiritual lineages. So we come into this idea and we're, we're, we're building upon that very same principle that the spark of the fire of purification can rise up within us. Once that fire is burned through all the impurities, then the jnana diptir, that, that light of knowledge, the glow, the inner glow, that remains. Now, that's not the end, however. It's not the purpose of the Ashtanga path, according to Patanjali. Then what happens at the very end, Viveka Kyati? We have viveka kyati, viveka wisdom, kyati discrimination. And this is important because now the light can shine into the darkness. And once that light has the quality of illumination and shines into the darkness, there, there are some very important things that happen. Number one, you can see the truth. This is important. Why is it so important that we see the truth? Do we remember what we studied? We called this the mulaklesha, the root of the cycle of suffering is what? Remember, any of the core students, you remember? Avidya, ignorance, very good. Avidya, ignorance. So how do we remove ignorance? You can't go in search of ignorance and eradicate it. You can't do that. You can share the light. And that in and of itself removes the ignorance. This is what we try to do. So this avidya is this, this, uh, this ignorance. We must replace with the light of knowledge, right? And then it's said that once that light of knowledge is shared, we can finally discriminate between what is true and what is untrue. What is our, what we think about reality, what is actually reality? Or in more kind of contemporary terms, the story that we tell about reality versus what's actually real. And I don't know about you, but I can say for sure, so much suffering I see in my life and in the lives around me. One second. Hey, please everybody use the other door. As I said that the students here in Miami have not uh, taken as efficient a break as everyone at home. So they have missed the light of knowledge, all right? They're gonna come in only for the obstacles. They only get obstacles. You all have gotten the illumination and some few of you who are efficient, okay? The early bird gets the enlightenment. This is the new thing, okay? So as, as we were talking about this notion of 
the stories that we tell. And I said, as I don't know about you, but I've seen in my personal life that so much suffering has been created by false stories, false conclusions that we draw about this or that, stories that we tell ourselves that create a whole spin, a whole drama about this or that. And then we, we take action based on that story that we're telling ourselves, and it creates a whole cycle of suffering. So if we have the idea of the lamp of knowledge being illumination, removing of avidya, we remove this fake story that we tell about life. We remove the obstacles, the illusions, the lies, the delusions that we have about ourselves and we have about others. And until we're firmly established along the path, we're going to keep suffering. We're going to keep meeting on one obstacle, another obstacle, one obstacle, another obstacle, one obstacle, another obstacle, and then that's the whole life. And then we die and then we try again. And then in the next life, maybe we meet less obstacles, you know. So what do we do, right? What do we do? Eventually, we keep practicing and the light must be strong enough not only to remove the stories that we tell about our small realities, the small grievances we have between one person and another, but that light must be strong enough to reveal the truth of what we say in yoga, the, the delineation between prakriti and purusha. So this idea between what is the permanent eternal self versus what is the temporary egoic self, which arises and we cling to it and we attach to it and we tell the story. I want this. I need this. I take that. I do this, this, that, this, me, mine. This, what is often referred to as the madness of me and mine. And when that dissipates, when that dissipates, then we have more of Viveka Kyati. We have more of this discriminative discernment. We have the idea that that, that, that light has, has really spread about illumination. So how can we expect to do this in some 30 days? We cannot, right? How can we expect to do this in one year? We cannot. How can we expect to do this in two years? We cannot. How can we expect to do this in 10 years? We cannot. My teacher used to say, Ashtanga yoga is a very difficult practice. Whole lifetime take, take practice. Whole lifetime take practice. How many years you have left on this planet? Imagine practicing all those years, right? Be grateful how many years you have left on this planet. Some of you are like, I don't know. You know, maybe I'm getting older now. I don't know how many. Before it seemed like so many. Now it's decreasing, you know? So, <laughs> right? Now we think of this whole lifetime you take practice. As my teacher said, whole lifetime, whole lifetime. From this day, even if this is day one, you continue, continue, whole lifetime, whole lifetime, whole lifetime, years, decades of practice, thousands upon thousands of practice, tens of thousands of times you may complete the same asana over and over again. And then he said, some small benefit there for you. Let me think about that. Some small benefit there for you. For the person who thinks Ashtanga Yoga is, I learn anatomy, I know my hip joint, I know how to do this adjustment, I know how to uh, count in Sanskrit, then they think, no, look, I have attained so much in such a short time. Oh, no, no. This is not the Ashtanga Yoga method. This is the tool that is used to facilitate the method, which is different. Again, we have the idea of the spoon versus the meal. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the soup, we can say. Maybe you don't need a meal with a spoon. This may be weird. Uh, if you do, it's okay. You do what you like, right? So let's say you have a wonderful soup and then you have a spoon. If you obsess of spoon, oh, spoon, look at this spoon. I don't like its shape. It's like this, it's like that. I'm gonna make the best spoon. I know all about spoons. Spoons are my thing. I actually like spoons a lot as a parenthesis. 
It is something I personally really enjoy. So I don't want anyone to say, you know, quinoa is bad. She hates spoons. I personally let it be known. I like spoons. I carry one spoon in my purse. I like spoons so much. Okay. My personal contribution to reducing plastic, I carry the spoon in my purse at all times. So now, uh, if you but, but if you obsess about the spoon, someone gives you a soup and a spoon, and then you immediately, oh, what a bad spoon. This is a terrible spoon, such a horrible, but the soup is wonderful, but you cannot taste the beauty of the soup because you look at the spoon, so terrible, horrible spoon. I don't like it. It's pointy at the end. I like when they're round. Oh, what, is, what an ugly spoon, so terrible. Why are you giving this to me? I don't like this. So terrible. You throw it away. Now you cannot eat the soup. Now you sit there with a very messy soup and try to slurp it. And then you don't even appreciate the soup. Even you throw it away because you think, ah, this whole thing is, I throw it out. Then you go on some quests to make your own spoon and you produce this spoon. Now I have all of the knowledge contained right here. You have completely missed the mark. So some people, they take practice a little bit of time, a little bit of time. And then they think, I know. And I've been there for sure. Every, I think everybody does Ashtanga Yoga. We've all been there. We think, oh, I know, and we practice dogma. And at some moment, we realize, oh, I've been obsessing about the spoon. I've been saying, oh, spoon should be like this, exactly at this angle, exactly at that angle, never at this angle, only like this, only like that, this length, that length, all this sort of stuff. And then we have to realize so many spoons are there because so many people are there. A spoon for everybody, you can say, because you're, you know, the individual is different. So we allow variety. We allow diversity. We allow difference to come in. And then we can understand, oh, everyone's spiritual path is different. How I have walked is not how you will walk. How you will walk is not how another person will walk. We will all walk differently. And this practice is there not to make everybody walk the same way. We're not trying to create a yoga military. No, right? Not everybody should jump through the same way. Not everybody should jump back the same way. Not everybody's triangle pose should look the same. This is not the Ashtanga yoga method. Ashtanga Yoga Method is, here are these tools. Use them for your liberation. Here are these tools. Light your fire. Your fire. Not my fire. Light your fire. Here's how I've used the tools. Maybe helps you as inspiration, but not as a copy. And this is something that gets, you know, we, we, we go through a period where we have to copy because this is the best way we learn. And then at some moment, we have to liberate ourselves and say, oh, this is my path. I must walk. This was the spoon I was given. Let me make some updates. Right? We don't just throw it all out. So you can still appreciate the soup. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this was what I wanted to talk about before we have opened to any questions. Um, so we have had a talk about soups and spoons. And we have talked about what is the Ashtanga Yoga method and how to figure out what the method is. We've looked a little bit, uh, reviewed the definition of Ashtanga Yoga according to Patanjali. And we've talked about that this is a lifelong practice. And that there are asanas that you will go into for thousands of times, thousands of times, thousands of times. And still, there will be more to learn in that asana. And the only way we can understand that is that the asana is not the goal, but is a tool for you to light the path in some way. Mm -hmm. Make sense for everyone? Okay. Good. So I'm going to take a look in the chat and see if there are any questions. And if anyone here has a question, feel welcome to raise your hand. So I guess I should have expected this because I have been talking of food. So someone, Andrea, from uh, joining at home says, uh, can you please talk about the explanation between the diet and uh, the practice? So uh, what is the relationship between the diet and the practice? It definitely impacts, you know, the diet and the practice makes an impact. 
whatever you put into your body makes an impact on the body for better or worse. Now, here's some interesting things. There are some things which are beyond your control that impact your body. What do you think about that? Environmental things, things that are happening in the environment, you can't control, right? If a, a big storm comes, you can't control. Maybe you can leave a little bit. There was, we rarely have uh, lots of uh, fires in Florida because it's very wet here. So it's hard, difficult to burn anything in Florida, um, thankfully, I guess, uh, especially considering what's happening out in many parts of the world right now. But if you live in a part of the world that's subject to the wildfires, what can you do? You're suddenly you're impact, impacted with the particles in the air. This is impacting your body. This is impacting you know, your relationship to your practice, impact your breathing. This was this your fault. No, this was not your fault. So we can think about this. Sometimes we live in a very polluted area or city. This is also not our fault. These are environmental factors which impact our body. Now, uh, there, uh, there are, of course, uh, direct impacts that we can make on the state of our body, the state of our mind. These we have responsibility for to the best of our ability. And yes, diet does make a difference, definitely. However, you must find that out for yourself because everyone's body is different. According to yoga philosophy uh, in the yoga world, we are not diagnosing people according to uh, the health of the body, not taking people's blood and measuring you know, carbohydrates and fats and this sort of thing. In the yoga practice, we have a moral and ethical principle called ahimsa. And ahimsa is the Sanskrit word for nonviolence. But if you break it down even more, it's ah-himsa. And himsa is the word for violence. And ah is the opposite of violence. So often is this translated to nonviolence, honestly, because we cannot expect to be the opposite of violence. Why? Because we have so much violence within ourselves. So how can we be the opposite of violence when we have violence within ourselves? Violent thoughts, conscious or subconscious, you know, aware or unaware. We have violent thoughts we think towards ourselves, violent thoughts we think towards others. We are so violent. How can we be nonviolent? You know, how can we be the opposite of violence? So we have ahimsa often translated merely as nonviolence, as kind of the lowest rung for the moral and ethical step that we make on the path. If we cannot be the opposite of violence, we should try to simply refrain from acting on the violence that is within us, which is interesting. And that includes towards yourself. So many acts of self-violence we commit day by day, day by day, knowingly and unknowingly, consciously and unconsciously, we're, some, we're often acting against ourselves. What do we do? Sabotage this, sabotage that. Why? Because we have that seed of violence in ourselves. I'm not beyond that. I do it too. Me too. You know, everybody, we do this. Only those who are not in, are fully enlightened don't do this. So who have we got? If you meet Jesus, say hi. You know, if you meet the Buddha, say hi. Because you meet someone that doesn't have that. Everyone else, we're here on the planet Earth, stumbling and falling. But we have those seeds of violence within ourselves. So we have the teaching. The teaching says, at the very least, ahimsa. Try not to act out of the violence that's within you. So we have nonviolence. But eventually, the ahimsa means become the embodiment of the opposite of violence, which you can think of many opposites of violence, right? Some people say love immediately, peace. Some people would say justice is an opposite of violence to right the wrongs that have been committed in the past, that have been violent towards others. How do we remedy that? Only through justice, right? So we can think of many opposites of, of violence. You must find that out for yourself. So why I'm talking about this in relation to diet, you think, oh, because the diet is a, can be a form of violence, right? First of all, that we commit towards ourselves. Definitely, there are some violent things we can do to the body with food. 
one of which I will say a small joke about. When I started practicing yoga, uh, there was a very strong raw vegan community around uh, me. So I have asked also the same question. What about diet and food? What shall I do? And the community said to me, you should try to eat the raw vegan. And I think on day two of me saying, okay, I try it. I will eat raw vegan. I don't know what it means, but I will try it. Actually, I had no idea what it meant. And then I said, sure, that's what you're supposed to do. I do it. And then on the day two, uh, they have produced a sprouted black bean thing that I should have eaten. So this, I, I don't know if you've ever tried any sprouted black beans in your life. The black beans by themselves are already hard to digest, even if they've been cooked for a very long time. So then if you take the sprouted bl black, black bean, it is uncooked black beans. And you eat that. I have been in so much pain for maybe five hours after this meal. I thought I have committed an act of violence to myself. I've eaten these sprouted black beans and now I'm writhing in pain for five hours. It was one of the most pain I've ever, I almost went to the hospital. I thought I've really, something is wrong with the organ. They're exploding inside of my body. Um, and then, and uh, you know, so the reason I share that some humorous thing is that sometimes we think, oh, if I only eat this, then this is ahimsa but sometimes it doesn't agree with our bodies. We have to figure out how do our bodies relate well with this food substance. And then number two, we have to consider how does this food substance relate with the planet? You know, some people say, oh, I only eat fruits and vegetables, but all the fruits and vegetables have taken long airplane rides across the planet. But then they're, they're eating only fruits and vegetables that have been on long airplane rides. And then, all, and then locally, maybe there's something else that's being ignored. So we can think about this, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to find out the own path, but try as much as possible to operate from the paradigm of ahimsa, not only with the diet, obviously, but also with the thoughts, the actions, and the way we think and relate with others. We say that there are, are numerous, um, numerous pathways to articulating ahimsa, ahimsa of um, action, which includes our food choices, ahimsa of uh, speech, even though that's included within action, sometimes speech is its own category. So speech, ahimsa of speech, ahimsa of thought, which is the hardest. How do we remove those thoughts? Then we start to get into what is referred to as the samskaras, the samskaras, those behavioral patterns. How do we get in there and remove that thought? How do we get in there and, and, and dig in? And then we go again all the way back to the beginning of what we talked about with this ashadik siyaye. We have to burn through, the, through those impurities. We have to seek out those impurities of the mind. And then we will be able to eventually remove those violent thoughts within ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, how to maintain a balance between the discipline that you need to do the practice and the, uh, the, the, the gentleness that's needed as well. So how do you balance those two points, especially to maintain the correct method for a very, a, a, a correct method of practice for a long time? And I think this is a really appropriate a question for everybody to sit with. And we can go back to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras with Abhyasa, Vairagya, Abhyam, Tanirodaha, this balance between Abhyasa and Vairagya. And Abhyasa is the discipline, the sternness, the effort, you know, and then the vairagya is the non-attachment to the results. So we have two wings, we could say, of um, wisdom and compassion, of practice and surrender. Or if we look at shtiram sukham asanam, between shtira, strength and steadiness, and sukha, which is sort of the gentleness, the grace, the flow. So we have those two. Okay, so how do we balance those two? According to Patanjali, you must find that perfect balance whatever that balance is to create equilibrium within yourself. So each one of you 
along the practice has to figure out, oh, I am more disciplined. Oh, I am more gentle. I need to a little more discipline. The danger is that many of us will do like this. Oh, I need discipline. Discipline. Ah! Then we go crazy in the discipline. Then we have to soften. I need soften. Okay. I soften. I sleep in. Send me donuts. I only need donuts. I've been told I need to relax. Please send me donuts. 12 dozen donuts and I will relax very, very intensively. And then somebody says, you're eating too many donuts. You need to take practice. Practice, I take practice. We swing to the extremes and we have to find the balance. So we have to find the balance. When is it appropriate to employ discipline? When is it appropriate to employ gentleness? And then we can address that from the holistic perspective. Xenia has a question. Maybe many of you will be interested in this question. Xenia says, I have one tapas that I cannot overcome. It is waking up early in the morning to practice. I feel I am doing himsa to my body by getting up so early. <laughs> How can I work with it using the ahimsa principles and the tapas principles? Okay. So sometimes we cannot understand that some suffering is good for us. Right? So it is about the way in which you interact with the tapas. If you wake up in the morning and the alarm goes off and immediately start thinking nasty thoughts, then this is not the act of tapas. Then this is the act of generating more sankharas, more sufferings. So we have to be disciplined with the mind from the moment the alarm goes off. If you wake up at a time you don't like, it's so easy to have the alarm go off and go, oh, this is terrible. Why is the alarm going off? Awful, awful, awful. I hate, I hate, I hate. And it is very difficult in that moment to say, thank you, I'm so glad the alarm went off right now. I'm so glad I didn't miss my practice. This alarm is working for me, thank you. I'm so glad I have the opportunity to practice so early. Look, I got it done before work, wonderful, this is great. Immediately, as a practice, we start working with the mind to train the mind away from those violent thoughts, away from those negative and destructive thoughts. And the harder the tapas is, the harder it is to work with that. Does the body feel good? No. I will be honest with you, the body's not feeling good the earlier you practice. Earlier you practice, worse your body is feeling. Then we have to understand that that in and of itself, just waking up, that is the tapas. You get onto the mat, it's very important if you change your practice time and it's much, much earlier until your body adjusts to the earlier practice time, do not expect the same depth of postures. Very important. When I go to Mysore and I wake up at 2 a.m., to do the yoga practice, the only thing that's working in my favor is the jet lag. This is very good for me because I am awake anyway at two in the morning in India because it's like noon in Miami. So I love to wake up in the middle of the night for the first week or two that I'm in India, but it is a deteriorating situation. The longer I stay in India, the more himsa it feels and the more tapas it becomes. Anything that's easy for you is not tapas. Anything that requires tapas will have the risk, the temptation to be too stern, to, be, to activate old patterns. So the more tapas we do, the more diligent we have to be in how we're training. So as I continue to practice, if I go to India, I practice. You have all experienced this over the month. First week, everybody excited. Yes? Second week, little excited. Third week, hmm, do I have to do it again? The fourth week, beginning of fourth week, oh no, but then it's ending and suddenly you think, oh no, 
oh no, I don't want to leave. Please let me stay. Please, I never want to leave, you know? But then there has been this suffering where the suffering has made us not appreciate the gift that was there. And many people without yoga can spend the whole life like that. Whole life goes by in the blink of an eye, complaining of this, complaining of that. This person did me wrong. That person did me wrong. This person did me wrong. That person did me wrong. Whole life, blink the eyes, life is over. Wake up, I missed it all. I missed it all. There was opportunity there, opportunity there. Yes, it was difficult for me. Yes, it's difficult for all of us. There's nobody on this planet that difficulty doesn't exist for. And if we don't understand how to approach that difficulty with a kind heart, then we can miss the whole opportunity of the journey of yoga. Um, so the question from Louisa is how can you maintain the daily practice in the midst of very strong uh, and potentially negative and, and, and depressing emotions that arise? How do we maintain the practice amidst that, especially during these trying times when we experience a lot of difficulty and struggle, even the loss of loved ones and grief that may arise? So first of all, this is why it's so important that yoga acknowledges suffering. There are many spiritual teachings out there that say, you, can be, you don't need to ever suffer again. You can just change your vibration, and vibrate in a frequency of love and light. And this feels, when you are suffering, really bad. It feels invalidating. It feels suddenly you feel unseen. You feel, I'm doing something wrong. You feel the cause. Oh, now I'm blamed also for how badly I'm feeling. So it's very important to understand that the yoga practice begins with a recognition and an acknowledgement of your suffering. So this is very important. Patanjali uses the phrase dukam eva sarvam. All indeed, sooner or later, will produce suffering. So rather than thinking that the times of intense emotions, whether positive, negative, but negative emotions are more easily overwhelming for us, rather than thinking that those times of intense emotions are an obstacle, we must change our framework. Oh, what a wonderful opportunity for me to face my grief. What a wonderful opportunity for me to face my anxiety, my sadness, my depression. Instead of thinking, oh, this shouldn't be here. Oh, I shouldn't feel like this. Instead of running from it, escaping from it. Now we have this teaching. Now I can practice with it. I can sit with it. I have, I have suffered from depression, the, the diagnosed depression since the time I'm nine years old. So I know what it means to work through depression, through the practice. I know what it means to sit with overwhelming emotion. I know what it means to sit there and think that, you know, life should end. I, I really get that. And I, I know what it feels to, to have it feel like you're the only one uh, that's out there, totally alone. No one understands you or gets you. I get that. And for me, the practice has been a space for me to work that out, for me to go in and feel the sadness, not stop running away from it, to have a tool to have it not overwhelm me and not sweep me away like a giant hurricane or a flood, but instead to learn to sit with those emotions. And of course, not only the practice, but when we have very strong, overwhelming emotions, we need help. And sometimes for me, that help has been not only my meditation practice, but also a therapist. If we're feeling completely overwhelmed with emotions and we don't have anyone to talk to about that, it's very important that we seek professional help. 
whether that's a therapist, whether that's even just a call line, just reach out to someone. It's extremely important, a friend that you can talk to that can help you guide you a little bit along the path. You just have to know that you're not alone. If you want to talk about what comes up in the practice, your fellow yoga practitioners are there. But if it's serious grief from the loss of a, of a family member, if someone that you love deeply has passed away, you may need more help than just the practice. So come, coming onto the mat and standing on the mat and crying on the mat, that counts as practice during times of deep depression, during times of grief. So we have to accept that. When my father passed away, I was overwhelmed with grief. And in the years before he passed away, I was overwhelmed with grief. He spent three years with a debil debilitating um, impacts of a, of a truly, you know, a, a, just a, 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 a truly horrible stroke that left him completely incapacitated for three years. So there were three years of grief that preceded the ultimate grief of his passing. And my practice during that, that time was, was in some ways a place of sanctuary, but in another place, in another space, it was also a place of confrontation where I would go and it was a place I couldn't run. I couldn't distract myself. And I had to sit with my grief. And on some days it was overwhelming and I couldn't make it through the practice. So I learned that that's okay too. You don't need to, in the midst of intense emotional waves, force yourself to do you know, crazy looking shapes with your body. Just that you get on your mat and you stand there. It's enough. There is one story that I would like to share with you from the teaching of the Buddha. And then we can give Marcos the time to translate. <laughs> so in the, in the teaching of the Buddha, um, there was a woman who came who has lost her son. And she said, oh, Buddha, you are the enlightened one. You have all these cities. You can do like this. You can do like that. Please bring my son back to life. And he said, oh, dear woman, I understand what a terrible loss. It's my only son, you see, and I am too old now to have more children. My son has died. Oh, I really feel your pain, dear woman. I can do this for you, but you must complete one task. So he sent her on a task. And he said to this woman, go into the town that you live, knock on every door, and bring me one grain of rice from one family who has not lost some dear one of theirs. So this I will do. And she left immediately and went knocking on every door. And she told her story, knocked on her neighbor's door and said, please, uh, my son has died. The Buddha said, he will bring my son back. If only I can get a grain of rice from one family that has not, uh, not experienced a, you know, a death, a deep loss. And I said, oh, dear, dear neighbor, we would we feel so strongly for you. But you see, just the one month ago, our dear brother has passed away. I cannot give you the grain of rice. Oh, so she left and knocked on every door. And they, every person empathized with her and said, we are so sorry for your loss. We would love to give you this grain, but only last week, our dear grandmother has passed away. Well, another family said to her, I too have lost a child. I'm so sorry for you. So she came back to the Buddha and said, nobody, not a single family in the whole village, the whole city has not experienced this grief, this loss. What can I do? And at that moment, he said to her, you can take practice. You can take practice. Would you like to learn to practice? So anyhow, she said, yes, please teach me. And then she started to practice. So like that, the very suffering that we think is the obstacle is actually the blessing to bring us onto the path. This, this Dukkam Eva Sarvam that Patanjali talks about, all indeed is suffering. If you remember what Patanjali says, the one who has understood this, all indeed is suffering. Every family has suffering. Every human has suffering. Every animal has suffering. Every plant has suffering, all have suffering. Then this person is called in Patanjali's words, vivekinaha, 
one who sits with Viveka. Remember Viveka, we've already talked about even in this talk, wisdom. One who sits with wisdom. You become wise when you understand this first basic truth that suffering exists and understand that it is not working against you, but it is working for you on the path. Maybe we take one more question for today. And Bruna has a question. Bruna says, uh, how has the practice helps us to, dis how does the practice help us to discipline our minds? I mean, how do you change the patterns of your thinking during the path through the Ashtanga practice for a long time? This is an interesting question in relation to the acknowledgement of suffering, right? And it's sort of this question of how do we, how do we actually work with the stuff of our thoughts, you know? So this is where the idea of kind of superficial positive thinking doesn't really work because we've studied in this course about the different layers of the brain. And this is what we, we did this as a precursor to the deeper meditation we've been going over. So remember, uh, if you remember some of the, the, the graphics that I shared with everyone, we have the, this, the tip of the iceberg where the conscious mind is merely the tip of the depth level of the mind and that the vast majority of, of our thinking is subconscious. So this means that almost 95% of our thinking is subconscious and it's uh, set by the time we're about 35 years old. So if we think about that, how does this actually, how do we actually work with that? Well, the way that the yoga practice begins to work with that is indirect. If you try to work with the subconscious mind directly, because this, it doesn't work because the subconscious mind speaks in subliminal language, the language of feeling, the language of images, the language of emotions. So if you try to go directly on to what's rooted deeply in the subconscious, it's, it doesn't really work. So the way that the yoga practice works with that is through first starting off with the tool of asana, change your body, stretch the body. Because when you bring your mind into the physical space of the body, then this allows a change in the patterning because you're tapping into the subconscious mind. There's a doctor um, who's, her, her name is Dr. Candace Pert, and she's written a book called The Molecules of Emotion. And she had this thesis, which said that, that the body, she believed, and she proved it to be true, that the muscles of the body had as many receptors for the neurotransmitters of emotion as the brain. And she actually found out that not only did it have as many, but the body had more receptor cells than the brain does for the neurotransmitters of emotion. And her thesis essentially uh, that she ended up proving with her research is that the body, it's not like the subconscious mind, but the body is the reservoir. It is the subconscious mind. So that by stretching and bending and moving, doing these asanas, we're actually working with the subconscious mind. It is of course possible through deep power of perception to merely tap into and feel the layers of the subconscious mind in the body. But this requires a very deep level of introspection, a very deep level of meditation that not everybody is able to access without intensive spiritual practice. So we have to understand that any updates we make through the yoga practice, you can think about them as updates that you make to the operating system of the mind. And it is only by penetrating from conscious to subconscious can you actually instill real palpable change in your life? If we exist on that superficial level of positivity where, where you say, well, I'm just going to wake up and think everything is good. You know, even though it's terrible, I'm just going to say, this is good. This is good. This is good. It doesn't work because you haven't penetrated to the deep 
layers of the mind. So we start with asanas, we change the way we be and move and inhabit the body, then that makes some impact. Over time, our power of perception deepens and we can cross the bridge from the conscious to the subconscious mind. And when you enter the contact with the subconscious mind, again, it doesn't feel linear. It doesn't feel like, yes, I've arrived. It feels kind of like you're in the stuff of it. You know, you're in the fire. When things get really difficult and you're, there's, there's, there's like a deep pattern that's about to bubble up to the surface, it's almost, that's when you know you've kind of tapped into that bridge. And then you can make some serious changes, which you'll, which you'll feel, not directly, but which you'll see reflected back at you in the mirror of your life. Someone will say to you, oh, you used to be like this and now you're like that. Oh, there's a change. This used to really bother you. It doesn't bother you anymore. Oh, that's cool. Nice. Or strangers will say, you're so calm. What do you do? You know, are you from this planet? Right? And you're like, not anymore. You know, <laughs> I joined planet yoga. All right. And then we understand that we have updated the operating system of our mind. We have changed the biology of our brain because we're literally different people. We inhabit different spaces in our bodies. And by doing so, we become different human beings. And it sometimes can feel like we've kind of, we've changed the planet if there's enough of us practicing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lots of love. Keep practicing. See you soon. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.